Uh, I apologize for my voice. So if you were here Sunday, you know that uh, I was on my way to having laryngitis. I had three more events after Sunday morning, which I had to speak at, uh, various things. By Sunday night, I was done. Monday, I could not speak at all. I had nothing. So I, I lived my life, but I didn't do any speaking on Monday. Uh, Tuesday, then, I had to, I had scripture reading in the morning, and I had uh, a bunch of meetings, and then I had to teach uh, at PVCC, so I barely made it through yesterday. Today's been a little bit better, but here's the thing. Yesterday, I was told, Ira, you were there, I was told, oh, there's a new COVID going around where laryngitis is one of the symptoms. <laughs> so I have tested for COVID and I am negative. I want you to know. But also, here's the cynical side of me. Everything is COVID now. Yes. Yes. Oh, you got a pimple, COVID. It's a COVID pimple. Athlete's foot, COVID. <laughs> it's just unbelievable. They can't prescribe it for you. Yeah. <laughs> What's the point? <laughs> I, so, uh, same thing. I heard somebody today, um, somebody who um, I remember during the pandemic was kind of on high alert. And she said uh, today, she said, I get sick now. I'm not getting tested for COVID. It doesn't matter anymore. I, it, it's interesting how this thing is kind of going in ebbs and flows, you know, anyway. So could we spend the next 45 minutes talking about COVID stories? I got COVID stories if you want. Anyway, I'm sorry. I know this is painful for you. It's also painful for me. I taught my class at GCU today, though, and one of the students came up and said, that's the best lecture you've done so far this semester. And I said, how do you know? You didn't, couldn't hear anything, you know? So anyway. Um, uh, we're in... Um, Second uh, Corinthians 11, starting at verse 26. This is, uh, Paul started his foolish, his foolish defense where he just says, all right, I'm just going to do all the stuff that the world does to try to get my point across to you. And then he starts his danger rant in verse 26. So let me see if I can get us started on that. So 25, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, in dangers from my own people, in dangers from Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, danger in false brothers. And then 27, we'll get back to that because there's a lot in 26. So this is Paul's danger rant within his foolish rant. And he starts by saying that he's been on many trips, journeys, excursions, whatever. <coughs> and these are the things he's encountered on these journeys. And yes, there is significance and relevance to us in many of these items. So he says dangers and rivers. So how would that apply to us? Well, actually, the scholars say that this is representative of any sort of natural, unexpected, or script-altering occurrence that puts yourself and your mission in jeopardy. So today, I would argue that would be air travel. And I'm not talking about crashes. 
<coughs> talking about the airline's new incompetence and indifference in doing their jobs well. Have anybody, has anybody experienced that? <coughs> I'm sorry, my throat also tickles from time to time because of this thing. Anyway, that leads me into a whole other conversation, which is a rabbit that's being chased, but I'm going to chase it. Has anyone noticed how many places have decided to use the pandemic as a reason not to do their jobs well? There's a quite a few places. I, I would argue the airlines are one of them, but here's maybe the biggest one. The Department of Corrections. We, I'm sorry, and, and Ira's a veteran. We still can't go in and do worship services in the prisons, even though COVID has been eradicated from the prisons. We still can't go in and do worship services down there. And, and Malia's uh, and Caleb are both, they, they've been around since the time we used to go down there. And Malia's like, I want to go back down there. I want to go back down there. When can we go? And so I've been trying to get it figured out. But the Department of Corrections has found a way to work less hard and not do as much. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Yeah. I'm glad you're retired, so I now I can say these things. You still don't think you don't think there will be improvements with the new director? Well, he's still well. They're being investigated by the uh, Justice Department too. So. Oh, that's wonderful. Okay. Yes. Well, that might not be a bad thing because, um, you know, some of you know Joe, the guy that lived with us for nine months after he got out. The number of surgeries he's had to have after he got out of prison for 23 years is alarming. And their routine thing, uh, dental work, hip replacement, shoulder replacement, um, it just, it's amazing because of the lack of proper medical care down there. I remember uh, once something happened to him and he had to be taken um, by emergency ambulance into um, uh, St. Luke's Hospital. That's where they take prisoners from Florence. Yeah. So up here to St. Luke's. <clears throat> so I found out that he was in St. Luke's. Nobody was supposed to know. I found out because, you know, there's an information highway in prison like you wouldn't believe, you know, you would believe it. Anyway, um, so I found out. So I went down to St. Luke's. And I worked every possible angle I could just to be able to get in there and see him and pray for him um, because I knew he was in there and he was suffering. And finally, finally there was a, uh, a nurse or something that said, all right, come on, real quick, five minutes, and, and let me in. And there he is in there in pain and sedated, and he's, and he's handcuffed every, uh, every limb to, to the bed and everything. So I prayed over him anyway. So, wow, how'd we get off on that? Because I'm, I saw a bird fly by and I said, oh, cool, all right. Um, but also it could be potential crashes and also the weather and disease. Anyway, Paul was in danger from robbers, from his own people, from Gentiles in the city, in the wilderness, danger at sea. This one was also prophetic. We'll read that passage. And in danger from false bro brothers. So a quick unpacking of each of these. In danger from robbers. It was very dangerous to travel from city to city in the first century. Very dangerous. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Robberies were common. Most people loathed traveling for this reason. Up until the first century, um, about 5% of people that lived in the world, about 5% actually traveled further than 20 miles from their birthplace in their lifetime up until the first century, and this was one of the reasons. But Paul traveled constantly because, because he had a mission. 
in danger from my own people. The Jews felt betrayed uh, by Paul because of his conversion and subsequent work for the gospel. So they all tried to kill, many of them tried to kill him. He was in danger from Gentiles. Even though Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, he was called to go to the Gentiles, and he desired to love and serve them. He was still a Jew, and the Gentiles did not care how the Jews had treated them for centuries. So Gentiles were a danger to Paul. A danger in the city. I believe this is specifically referencing the city of Jerusalem, the hub of the Jewish professional religious people. Um, going to Jerusalem was always dangerous for Paul, and in fact, that's where he was put on trial at the end of the book of Acts and ended up having to go to Rome uh, when he appealed to Caesar. Danger in, wilder- in the wilderness. I think this is both metaphorical and real. Paul <coughs> spent a lot of time in true wilderness, in the true wilderness communing with God, but going into the wilderness always presented some dangers. Uh, some of you know, I used to be a really avid hiker. I don't have as much time now. I still like to hike. I just don't get to do it as much, but I've hiked so many trails in Arizona, but I will also tell you, I have had run-ins with bears on so many trails in Arizona, and it's a little bit frightening, and I've been able to get away from each one of them. Um, One time, because I was with a police officer who had a nine millimeter, um, and that was helpful. He fired it a couple times. The bear didn't like that, Um, but uh, that's, you know, there's, there's bears, there's snakes, uh, as uh, Ryan will attest, there are snakes just in the Phoenix Mountain Preserves. There's rattlesnakes all over the place out there. Anyway, but also, metaphorically, we all have wilderness experiences. We're not literally in the wilderness, but spiritually we are. Paul had that too. And I think at this point in his ministry to the Corinthians, it probably felt like a wilderness experience. And then dangers at sea. Paul often traveled by ship as well in the first century on the Mediterranean. That was very dangerous. Um, But also it's a little bit prophetic. Let me try to read this for you. Acts 27, starting in verse 13. um, This is after Paul has appealed to Caesar, and he wants his trial to go to Caesar and be heard before Caesar, which eventually he does get there, and he does, after two years in prison in Rome, he is heard by Caesar, and Caesar exonerates him the first time. The second time they executed him. The first time he's exonerated. But on the way, they had to, they had to uh, go on the Mediterranean, starting in verse 13, chapter 27. When the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind, that's a bad wind, tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught, it could not face the wind. We gave way to it and were driven along. So they just said, all right, have your way with it, wind. Running along the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. This is Luke describing what was happening. He was there. Then fearing that they would run aground on on the uh, Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. That's what you do when you're in a big uh, storm on the sea is you got to offload uh, weight. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, 
you should have listened to me and should have not have set sail for Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Earlier in Acts 27, he said, don't do this. It's not a good idea uh, to go. So now he's saying, I told you so. Yet now I urge you to take heart, have hope, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only a, of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and before God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith that God, uh, in God that it will be exactly as I, as, as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. In other words, the ship's going to be destroyed. When the 14th night had come, as we were driven along, being driven along the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. <clears throat> so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little further, they took a sounding and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run up, um, on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food for it will give you strength. For not a hair shall perish from the hair of any of you, <clears throat> from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and he began to eat. And when they were encouraged, uh, and they were all encouraged and ate some of the food themselves. There were in all 276 persons in the ship. This was a big ship, okay? And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. The, the wheat purveyors were very upset about that. Uh, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a, day, a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them at sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, they then hoisted the foresail to the wind they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest they should swim away and escape. Why would they kill the prisoners? Because if the prisoner escaped, then you have to suffer the consequences of the prisoner. The prisoner. So if, if you're a Roman soldier and your prisoner escapes, you take the place of the prisoner and you will be executed. So it's better if you're a Roman soldier to kill your prisoner who's trying to escape than to let him escape. That's, that's the way it worked back then. So much fun. Um, uh, but the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land, and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that they were all brought safely to the land. After we were brought safely uh, through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, and they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and it was cold. When Paul had gathered a bunch of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat of the fire and fastened to his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer, though he had escaped from the sea. Justice has not allowed him to live. He, however, Paul, shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. 
who when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. <laughs> just, I love that story. Okay, so anyway, they, they stayed there. They wintered there in Malta, and then they caught another ship and went to Rome. But that would be, uh, I know that took a little while, but that, that idea of being dangerous on the sea. Now, he'd been on the sea many times before and suffered dangers, but it was also prophetic because of that. The last one, false brothers. I'll tell you with my own, of my own, I won't tell you details, but my own experience with false brothers or false teachers in the church is some of the nastiest stuff that a pastor has to go through. Um, And as we all know, Paul writes many portions of his letters to deal with false brothers and false teachers. It is a constant challenge and one that every shepherd shepherd of a church must be aware of, but often is loath to have to deal with because it's it's really nasty and hard. So... um, Thinking about this from um, a very selfish perspective, I thought, okay, so Paul has his list of dangers. What would my list be? So you want to hear my list? Here it is. You're going to hear it anyway. Okay. So I'm in danger from woke college students. I'm in danger from too many coffee meetings, my bladder especially. I'm in danger from embarrassing Jackie. That's a serious danger, more than what Paul suffered, I will tell you. I'm in danger from COVID. I'm in danger from maskers. I'm in danger from anti-maskers. I'm in danger from Suns fans. I'm in, danger, I'm in danger from Boston Bruins fans. None of them are here tonight, but they're here often on Sunday. I'm in danger from meth addicts on the canal early in the morning. I'll tell you that story. I'm in danger from driving in Phoenix. Anybody else suffer that danger? Um, and so that was my list. And then I remembered, oh, I forgot one. I'm in danger from memory loss. <laughs> Took a second. Okay. Anyway, so Sean Myers, who's pastor of Pella Communities and was the planning pastor of Peoria, he loves this story. Uh, he told it once as a sermon illustration at Peoria for some reason. Anyway, I go out. When I run on the canals, I run very, very early on the canal banks. And... Um, One morning, this is about seven or eight years ago, I was on a long run going west on the canal bank. That's the one just north of here. And, and, you know, it takes you right by Metro Center once you get past uh, I-17. Anyway, I was running west, and I hit 19th Avenue, which is north of Dunlap. So it's kind of a bit of a kind of a sketchy sunny slope area, you know. But it's early in the morning. Who's out early in the morning? Well... All the meth addicts are out early in the morning, I discovered. So there was a group of them all hanging around right at about 19th Avenue and, uh, and the canal. And I, I looked up and I saw them and I thought, whatever, I'm just running. They'll leave me alone. So I, I ran by them and there was seven or eight of them. And one of them yelled, let's get him. And he started running after me. And so, I, by the way, I carry pepper spray with me. So I went in my pocket and pulled out my pepper spray, and I was ready to spray him if he, got, if he got close to me. He ran like five steps, saw that nobody was going with him. And I also think he ran out of stamina at that point, but he just stopped, and so I put away the pepper spray. Anyway, uh, so I'm in danger from meth addicts on the canal bank. So uh, continuing, here we go, verse 27. So, in toil and hardship through many sleepless light, night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold 
and exposure. So I would summarize verse 27 as this. There are general common hardships that affect all people in all vocations, and pastoral ministry is no exception, right? It's true, okay. But then there's verse 28. And apart from all these things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for the churches. So there's the crux of the matter. This might be the most challenging thing. Tom used to talk about this too, and I would agree with him. Uh, a pastor a pastor must have a caring heart, a caring heart, a soft heart. Uh, if you don't have a caring, soft heart, please don't be a pastor. That would be my counsel. However, here's the tension. Because a pastor must have a soft, caring heart, that, carry, that, that uh, soft, caring heart gets beat up quite a bit because you have to give it to so many people into so many situations. So what happens to many pastors, and I've seen this, is they begin to self-protect. And so they begin to protect their heart. And that feels pretty good, except when you start to protect your heart, your heart becomes cold. And so a, a pastors exist in the heart world uh, on this continuum from care to cold. And when a pastor's heart goes to cold, um, the pastor becomes completely ineffective. They feel better about their life in many ways, but they become completely ineffective. Um, I will tell you, my heart breaks every time I have to deal with a devastating sin issue, and, and it happens. And I hate it, and it doesn't feel good. And sometimes people who are in sin will blame their pastor for it. And that can be really hard as well. Um, but I, am, I will tell you, I am also glad that my heart still breaks, because if it didn't, I don't think I would be long for this place. Your heart still has to break. Uh, Tom used to describe the, it this way in romantic relationships. That would be Tom Schrader, our founding pastor. Um, people in romantic relationships would get their heart stomped on, and then they would say, I am never going to love like that again. And he would say, okay, that's fine, and I certainly understand that sentiment, okay? But you need to understand that if you're never going to love like that again, you will never experience joy again. So there's a cost to that. So when a pastor's heart goes cold, they also don't experience any joy. They don't experience any, any of the good parts, and there are many wonderful good parts of being a pastor. So I'm glad my heart still breaks, but ah, you thought I was done. I also have to remember at the same time that I cannot, I cannot, no one can fix, save, or transform anyone. Just not capable. Now, I, again, I will tell you, there are many people in the church that think I can. It's never they think I can change them. It's they think I can change somebody else in their life. <laughs> okay, and they're always frustrated when we can't do that. Um, but most of the time, the best I can do is listen. Occasionally, and I, I tell you, I celebrate these times. Occasionally, there's a time when you, when you actually give counsel to somebody. Most of the time, people don't take your counsel because their heart is telling them to do something different. And, of course, we live in a culture, emotional rationalism, where people follow their heart. But occasionally, someone takes the counsel, and it works out for the betterment of those people. Those moments are few, but they are beautiful, and, and I savor those moments. Those are victories to celebrate. At any rate, I feel Paul's pain here 
but that's also what we're called to do. And I'm not whining, and neither is Paul. Remember, this is his foolish talk. At any rate, this pastoral tension is then actually teased out a little bit in verse 29, which um, some people struggle to understand what he's saying here. I hope to explain it. Uh, In verse 29, he says, Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? So that first clause, who is weak and I'm not weak, Paul says, hey, I understand people of faith get weak. Can I get an amen? We get weak, right? Okay. Um, Even I, Paul says, the great apostle, I feel weak at times. If you're not sure about that, um, read Romans chapter 7, verses 13 through 25, where he says that uh, the spirit of God and his flesh are in constant battle. Um, He says, I don't understand the things I do. The things I want to do, the things I know I should do, I don't do those things. The things I know I shouldn't do and I don't want to do, those are the very things I find myself doing. That's that war of flesh and sin inside of me. And he ends it, of course, by saying, who will save me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says, the body is, is dead in sin, but... Jesus is our salvation for that. So Paul says, I get you. I'm right there with you. In 21st century vernacular, Paul would have written, I feel you, okay? So I picked that up watching uh, certain shows on Netflix. Anyway, the second clause, though, but who will fall and I am not indignant. What does that mean, okay? The second part of the verse is the and yet part of the verse. Paul is saying, and yet, If that weakness results in sin, I am still going to come and rebuke, correct, and challenge you in it as I am now. I understand your weakness and I sympathize, I empathize, but also in your weakness when you sin, I still have to challenge you just as you should challenge me. That's what he's saying. So verses 30 through 33. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. So um, what of this? Actually, it's pretty simple but countercultural. Paul begins in verse 20 and verse 30 by stating that he does not do what most humans in culture do, and that would be to brag about themselves. By the way, if you're not sure about that, just see social media. People really love to. Um, Kim Cash Tate say, says that social media is where bragging got its wings. Okay? Now, now think about this. Now, I took that saying in a talk that I give on social media, and I say, how many of you, let's say you live in a house, in a, we live in a house in a neighborhood in a, in a cul-de-sac. Uh, let's say you live in a house in a neighborhood with a cul-de-sac. Would you ever walk out the front door of your house at 6.30 or 7 at night, summon your neighborhood, knock on everybody's door, come, please come out here, please come out here, come out here, I need, I need to talk to you all, okay? And then once they're gathered, uh, show them the award that you won at work that day, uh, talk about who you had lunch that, with that day, uh, tell them about your uh, sexual prowess, okay? Would you ever do that? in person? Of course not. But we do it online all day long. It's called the disinhibition effect. It, the uh, 
Having something mediate our communication um, drops our inhibitions. So we do things online that we would never do in person. That's why Kim Cash Tate said that. Okay, so Paul says, that's not what I'm going to do. He says, rather, uh, if I'm going to brag, I'm going to brag about how weak I am. And we'll get more into that in, in chapter 12 in just a second. And the reason he, he brags about how weak he is is because it exalts Christ. It diminishes him and exalts Christ. So then he gives a personal example of how small he is compared to Jesus. Very early in his Christian ministry career, Paul was preaching very effectively in Damascus, a major city. And the preaching about the gospel upset people kind of like it does sometimes today. So the big cheese of the city decided that Paul needed to be killed. The church of Damascus got wind of this, and so they lowered Paul out of, this, um, out of the city, on the outside of the city wall in a basket. So if you know, ancient cities used to be built with walls around them for defensive purposes, but often... Uh, as in Jericho, if you um, know about when uh, Joshua marched the Israelites into Jericho and took Jericho, um, Rahab's family lived in one of these apartments. Damascus had these apartments too. The wall would also be built, would be built real thick so that you could put apartments, living quarters in the wall. So there was somebody who was part of the Damascus church who lived in the wall uh, very high and had a window So they took a basket and they lowered Paul out of the city and so that he didn't have to go through the main gates where they would have caught him. They just lowered him in a basket out of of their window uh, with rope. Um, Anyway, this basket escape is actually a very humiliating thing because you can't, with dignity, just walk out of the city. It, It made Paul look very small. And Paul was saying, that's fine with me because Jesus is big. It's okay that I'm small. And if the Corinthians were wise, he's saying you would start to see yourself the same way. And the problem is is that these interlopers who have come in from the outside, they don't see themselves as small. They want to be big, and they make Jesus small. So John the Baptist, of course, said, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. Uh, One of my favorite pastors, Tim Tim Mon, says, um, one of the jobs of of a Christian is to seek to be small, Humility is a virtue, it's not a vice. And I'll tell you, that was a tough sell in the first century, and it's even a tougher sell in the 21st century, that humility is a virtue and not a vice. So, tonight we'll end with the first 12 ver- 10 verses of chapter 12. So he's going um, uh, to start to finish up his foolish speech here. So 1 through t- 10. I must go on boasting. I must go on being foolish. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I uh, should wish to boast, I would, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But if I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that I have experienced, Paul says, a thorn was given me in the flesh 
a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, and my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong, and the insinuation is I am strong in Christ. So this is his crescendo to his foolish speech. (coughs) And he's really bringing it home now. (coughs) It's kind of like the last nail in the coffin of his argument. And yes, here you go, verses 1 through 6. I might describe Paul here as almost manic, but manic with a purpose. And he makes his point starting in verse 7. So those first six verses about this man that was caught up into the third heaven, um, we don't know exactly what he was talking about. But we do know three things about what he was talking about and why it's important and what we might do with it. Number one, this happened... And I believe something like this can still happen and probably does happen, but it doesn't happen very much. Here's the second thing that flows off of that first one. Verses 1 through 6 is a descriptive passage of Scripture, not a prescriptive passage of Scripture. Do you understand the difference? Paul, a descriptive passage of Scripture is just describing something that happened. It doesn't mean you're supposed to go and do it as well. A prescriptive passage of scripture, which much of Paul's letters are prescriptive, is I am prescribing this for you to do. This is how you should um, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk out your faith in Christ. That's prescriptive. This is a descriptive passage. But many people use it as a prescriptive passage, unfortunately. And anyone who uses this illustration that Paul wheels out here As a reason that everyone should have these experiences, they are a false teacher, but people will use it that way. If you're not having these ecstatic experiences in the spirit, you are not a real Christian. I've heard that teaching before, okay? Uh, We might even get into that a little bit in a few weeks when we do the uh, four weeks on spiritual gifts, okay? So Paul is describing what happened, not what is supposed to happen. So... I hope we understand that. It's real, but it's not prescribed for everyone. And then number three, but I believe it still happens, depending. And number three, this this illustration is merely setting up the closing argument we find in verses 7 through 10. Sometimes God allows thorns in our flesh in order to make sure we stay humble, that we continue to seek to be small, and to remind us who it is that's really in charge. The Apostle Paul had a thorn in his flesh. Why do we think we'll never have any thorns in our flesh to keep us humble, okay? And the point is, Paul says it, his grace is sufficient and God's power is made perfect in our weakness because it it displays God's power. Furthermore, we should not become conceited. That's it, it's grace. We should purge pride. That's when God works best, when we're small, when we're in exile, When we're a remnant, that's when God works best. Um, Tom's spiritual father, so kind of like my spiritual grandfather, and I knew this guy not nearly as well as Tom, but his name was Larry Wright. He was a wonderful Bible teacher, just incredible, died 
way too early, just like Tom did. Um, this is the way to go for a, for a pastor, though. Uh, he was um, 10 minutes away from walking into the pulpit to preach on Sunday morning, and he had a heart attack, and he died. <laughs> so that's, he, he went out proclaiming the gospel. Anyway, um, a few years earlier, he had quadruple bypass surgery, Larry did, and Tom went to visit him in the hospital right after the surgery, and he walked in and he saw Larry, and he'd never seen Larry like that. Just so, uh, and Larry was not an imposing or impressive figure in the first place. He had arthritis, and people used to look at him that didn't know him and say, that guy's going to teach his Bible, and then he'd get up there and just blow you away, you know, kind of the way Tom was. But he walked in there, and he'd never seen Larry this completely disheveled and, and messed up and tubes and everything, and, and he was sort of sedated. Um, and Tom walked in, and, and, and he knew his face was just in complete distress and anguish when he looked at Larry. And he didn't want to do that, but he couldn't help himself. And Larry looked up at him and just said, his grace is sufficient. That was it. And it was amazing that in that moment, it was Larry ministering to Tom. Because he knew what Tom was feeling as he saw uh, Larry, but he quotes this surgery right there. So then here's the question uh, some people will ask. So what was the thorn, Frank? What was the thorn in Paul's flesh? Okay, so in 1995 at GCU, in my undergraduate 400 level, the Epistles of Paul uh, class that I took from Dr. Youngblood, uh, the, he only gave essay exams, and there were four of them during the semester. This question was on the exam what were the possibilities of the thorn in the flesh that Paul had? And there were eight possibilities, okay? And I will tell you that my opinion, and I love Dr. Youngblood. He just passed away a few months ago. I loved him, but I will tell you that in this case, I think he was missing the point of the passage. The point of the passage is not trying to discern what the thorn is. The point of the passage is that the thorn brings about God's grace, okay? But I wanted to get an A in the class, so I memorized the eight thorns. Here, here are the possibilities. Barnabas was possibly a thorn because Paul and Barnabas had that, um, that, disagree that uh, very stern disagreement in Acts 15 or 16, the end of Acts 15. Uh, John Mark might have been his thorn because John Mark abandoned them on the first missionary journey. So Barnabas might have been John Mark. Um, a lot of people think this is it. It was Paul's eyes because he had very poor eyesight. He had some kind of an eye problem. Couldn't even write his own letters, so his eyes. Um, there's some evidence that Paul had malaria. So apparently they didn't get the vaccine to Paul's area soon enough back then. But that he had malaria, that might have been the thorn. So the effects of malaria last for a very long time. Um, Paul also, we know, had a speech impediment. So that might have been his thorn that he prayed to get rid of. Uh, could have been the constant persecution that he faced from his countrymen, his kindred. Um, it could have been the ongoing pain that he had from getting stoned in uh, Lystra in Acts chapter 14. Could have been that. And then I added one, number nine. It could be the fact that he felt like he was homeless and he was often lonely. So, that, 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 so anyway, those are the possibilities. The point is, Paul was afflicted in order to remind him of who is supposed to be big. That would be Jesus. And who is supposed to be small, that would be Paul. And who this ministry is all about, and that would be Jesus. So ministry is, I just, ministry is not for people who desire to be big. And by the way, that's one reason why I'm not on social media. Okay, Because you can get caught up in that, sort of that, um, 
rat race of trying to get all the followers and be an influencer. So I finally just said, I, it's not for me. But there's also another reason why I'm not on social media, I will tell you. Um, it just would pain me and embarrass me sometime to see what, what Christians would post on social media. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I just, in that case, I think ignorance is bliss. I just would rather not see it, see it all anyway. So um, if, if there's something on social media that I really have to see, Jackie and my daughters will let me know what it is, and they'll send me the link, and I can look at it then. So anyway, if Paul is going to boast, it will be in his weakness, because only then Christ and his power exalted. And then in verse 10, he talks about how he's going to be content through everything. And really, um, that, that can be sum, summarized also in, um, gosh, I thought I had this right. Where is it? There it is. In Philippians chapter 4, which is a passage I'm planning to read on Sunday morning as well as we talk about um, contentment. Uh, Paul writes in Philippians chapter 4, which is just to the right of where we are right now, uh, verses 10 through 13. He writes, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me but you had no opportunity, no opportunity to show your concern for me. So here's what Paul is saying. Um, showing your concern for me is sort of code speak for funding my missionary journey so that I'm, I'm funded enough to be able to go and do this work. Contributing to his financial needs. That would be showing concern. He said, he said you weren't able to do it for a while I know you wanted to, but you couldn't because there was a famine in Philippi, and that's why they couldn't do it. But then the famine passed, and, and the economy got better, and now they've revived his con- their concern for him. They sent him some money while he was uh, writing this letter to uh, the Corinthians. So he says, thank you for doing that. But then he gives a little uh, lesson on contentment. Verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned whatever situation I am in, to be content, whatever situation I am. And notice he says, I've learned. There are some things um, that we as Christians are called to, but they are not part of the fruit of the Spirit, and they are not part of the spiritual gifts, but they are things that we must um, do, work on, learn, and discipline ourselves to go through in order to have things like perseverance, things like wisdom, and things like contentment. Contentment is not a gift of the Spirit, and it's also not part of the fruit of the Spirit in the sense that it's given to us by God. We have to learn it. We have to work on it. But essentially, he says, I've learned the secret uh, to life, uh, and that is to be content in any situation. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, the secret of facing abundance and need. So it doesn't matter. I can be on the top of the world and I can be in the worst place in my life. I'm, I'm still content, okay? And then he says, I can do all things through him, Jesus, who strengthens me. So what he's saying is that my contentment doesn't rest in the things of this world. It rests in my relationship with Jesus. But here's the key. This is really important. And we'll get much deeper into this, I think, on Sunday because it's a part of what we're going to talk about Sunday. We have to remember that what Paul is is doing here is not an anti-ambition message. It's not an anti-aspirational message. 
It's not a complacency message. It's none of those things. I would argue that Paul is the most ambitious man to ever live, and yet he's the one teaching us about contentment. He's the guy that went out every single day and gave everything he had to what he felt God was calling him to do, whatever that was, tent making or planting churches. It didn't matter. He gave it his all. But at the end of the day, he was able to sit down and look around and go, I'm okay with where I am. Whether I have a lot or whether I'm still in need, I'm okay with where I am, who I am, who I'm with, and what I'm doing. Okay, that's, that's really important to understand. And that's what he says at the, towards the end of this um, foolish speech. So um, uh, next week, we're going to wrap up the rest of 12. We're going to do all of 13. Uh, we'll get the last three verses of the foolish speech, and then we'll get into his final exhortations in chapter 13. Uh, And then on February 1st, we will start that uh, four-week series in spiritual gifts. Let me pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for your word and its truth, and I just pray that we would take your word and apply it to our lives with wisdom and understanding, which you call us to so often in the book of Proverbs. Help us to do that. Help us to seek after your will. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we'll see you Sunday.